Good morning, Hillcrest family. I'm excited to be here this morning. It's a privilege that Pastor Jim has given me to bring God's word to you this morning as we continue through our study of the book of Acts. So if you want to bring out your Bibles, you can begin looking up Acts chapter 16. We're going to wrap up the encounter in Philippi there at the end of the chapter uh, before moving on to Thessalonica and Berea. Now you remember, when we go through the book of Acts, Luke lays out a chronology of events, right? So he's, he's given us a sequence of encounters that happen, uh, but it's not just to document different things that happen. Luke has a purpose in his writing, and he's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it, and it's for our benefit that we look at it not just as stories to be read so that we know something, uh, but we look at it as a message that's being given to us that we might become something. So that's how we want to read the book of Acts. <clears throat> as he does this, he's going to use some literary devices to compare and to contrast uh, some different encounters that happened. We saw that just a couple weeks ago when Pastor Jim was telling us about three encounters in Philippi, and the encounters were all very different with different people, uh, but they all went toward the same result of an encounter with God and with the gospel. And so what Luke's going to do here in Acts chapter 17, he's going to kind of turn that on its head, and he's going to look at two encounters that are very similar, but that produce vastly different results. Those different results are going to happen in the two cities of Thessalonica and Berea. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's rewind and see where we left our missionary team with Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Uh, they're in Philippi. Paul and Silas have been beaten and put in prison, and overnight they experienced this miraculous earthquake that resulted in the conversion of their Philippian jailer. But when we left them, they're still prisoners, and so what we want to do is go back and pick up the story in Acts chapter 16. We want to start in verse 35 and see what happens. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So these magistrates that have imprisoned these two, they feel like, okay, well, we'll just let them go quietly. I think we've made our point. They'll leave the city, we won't have any further incidents, and everything will be peaceful. But what they didn't understand is that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and because of that fact, the actions that they had taken were in violation of Roman law. They weren't allowed to, to beat and imprison a Roman citizen without having a, a condemnation and a trial. So they were afraid when they hear this news. And when we read Paul's response, it's, it's interesting, because his response kind of feels... Uh, petty or vindictive or, or somehow vengeful, but in fact, when we look at what Paul's chief result is, it's a pastoral approach. Now remember, he's in Philippi and he's just preached the gospel and people have been converted, people have come to know Christ, so there's this new church that's been planted there. Now if Paul were to just leave prison, as the magistrates wanted them to do, then the impression would be given that Paul and Silas were simply lawbreakers that had come into this town, spread some lies, and then left. But Paul says, no, I'm going to take care of this church that I'm planted. I'm going to give them protection. I'm going to give them you know, some measure 
of protection by the magistrates coming and taking us out of prison, therefore vindicating us to some extent and giving this new church some credibility in the city of Philippi. So that's his aim. We notice also that, that Luke is, is changing his terminology here as well. We talked about this previously with Luke going from uh, an us and we to a them and they, and that's what happens in this passage. So from that, we get the impression that Luke is going to stay behind in Philippi as the mission continues forward. I believe that that's the case, and if we look forward into chapter 20, the next time that, that Luke makes this transition in, in uh, pronouns again, Luke is coming from Philippi and joining the missionary team. So it would make sense that, that here he's made this stop, and some scholars believe that Philippi may have been Luke's hometown, and so it would only make sense that Luke stays behind to help establish this new church, and that later on, once the church is more established, he'll rejoin the missionary team. Regardless, we had a team of four with Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke that now has become a team of three, now that Luke is staying behind, and they're going to go forward into the next town. Having been driven out of Philippi, they'll make their way to Thessalonica. And that's where we pick up our, our main text for this morning. In Acts chapter 17, we'll start in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Like I said before, Luke is setting up as comparison and contrast. He's going to set it up now between these two encounters with very different responses in Thessalonica and Berea. As I was thinking about this for the last couple of weeks, getting ready for this message, I was reminded of an old TV show that I used to watch. Anybody watch the show America's Funniest Home Videos? Still on today, man, over 600 episodes. It's just, it's just gold. I mean, it's good stuff. You should watch it. The whole point of the show, there's no plot. There's no you know, grand theme running through all of it other than the fact that they just show home videos of people doing really stupid things or making mistakes or pulling pranks or pets doing funny things. And that's the whole show. You just watch clip after clip and you sit there and laugh out loud. Now, as a child, that was, that was fun. 
I felt a little guilty about doing it as an adult until I had a daughter who would watch it with me. So now we can both laugh out loud as people ski off of a roof onto a trampoline or fall backwards into a swimming pool sitting at the backyard Bible or barbecue. So as, as we watch these shows and we see there's some themes that they'll have recurring videos that are of the same type, one in particular piqued my interest with regard to this message, and it's when you have a prospective couple, they're about to have a baby, and then their siblings are going to find out the gender. All right, so the parents, they're excited, they're going to reveal the gender to the other siblings, but sometimes you get some pretty funny responses when that happens. Rather than describe it to you, let's just take a look at a quick clip and you'll see what I mean. You're going to have a baby sister. Poor Jackson is not getting the little brother he was hoping for, I think. But there you can see we have the exact same message with two very different responses. And that's what Luke's trying to point out to us here with Acts chapter 17. As we look at these two encounters, there's going to be some things that are the same about them that produce these different responses. The first thing that's the same that we're going to look at is that it's essentially the same people. It's essentially the same people. In verse 4 of chapter 17, Luke refers to the Thessalonians when he says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Then we skip down to the Berean encounter in verse 12, and he says, Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So in both cities, we had these major groups within the synagogue. We had Jews, obviously, that were there. But we also had some Greeks that attended. These would be the God-fearers that we've talked about, that they weren't born Jewish, but they decided to follow the religion of Judaism. And then he specifically points out some women of high standing or prominent women in the community. Now, Thessalonica, when we look at the two cities, Thessalonica is by far the larger one. It's, it's the, the cultural and the political, the commercial center of Macedonia at the time, uh, probably numbering about 200,000 residents at this point. And so it's clearly the larger city, but Berea, being only 50 or 60 miles away, would have a similar cultural makeup, and that's reflected here in the population within the synagogue. Now, I think we should also point out that, that Luke is very careful to write that there were women of high standing, prominent women. And when we think of, uh, you know, biblical times or ancient times and the role of women, typically we think of them as being treated as property or, or second class or having worth only in relationship with their family or with their husband. Uh, but we find this is actually not true in this region of Macedonia. And that's what's interesting as we read about these prominent women and we read about Lydia just from the chapter before, uh, that there was this class of women who on their own right were, were prominent and had enjoyed a high standing in the community. And these women would come to form you know, some of the, the early bedrock of the Christian church. And so we have a lot to, to owe to this area for how they developed a church that was inclusive of both genders and of all people. Well, not only were the people the same, but we see also that, that Paul's process was the same. He used the same process. In verses 1 and 2, he lays it out very clearly. He says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. 
Then the Berean account, we read verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Just as Paul went straight from the persecution that they endured in Philippi to his next mission in Thessalonica, he turns around and does the same thing, going from the persecution of Thessalonica to the next mission at Berea. Now, the the journey that he would have taken from Philippi would not have been an easy one. There was a Roman superhighway they called the Ignatian Way. It was a a road that ran right through the heart of Thessalonica, and that's the way that, that Paul and his team would have traveled from Philippi down to Thessalonica, and they would have passed through the two cities that were mentioned. But that journey would be over 100 miles long. And in our modern times, we think 100 miles, eh, no big deal. You, you jump in your car, an hour and a half later, you're there. It's, it's not a problem. But when you think of it in terms of walking, that's as if you or I woke up this morning and decided, I think I'm going to walk to Biloxi, Mississippi. Right, you would probably have to break that trip up along the way. You don't just start walking and get there. And so when he mentions these two cities they passed through, this would be a journey of at least three days. And so they would have to stop to rest, to recover, to resupply along the way, as they made their way to Thessalonica. But it says once he got to Thessalonica, he went straight to the synagogue. And that was his custom. The verse is very clear that that's what Paul did. As soon as he arrived at a city, he looked for the synagogue and went there. If you remember, he wasn't able to do that in Philippi because there there was no synagogue there. But that was his custom, and he does that in Thessalonica and repeats the process again in Berea. So his, his process is the same all through this. After he gets to a synagogue... We see his process continues to be the same because he immediately goes to the scripture. He goes straight to scripture to make his arguments and and to do his teaching there within the synagogue. Now, as we see, the teaching that he does in the synagogue comes straight from the scripture. That leads us to the last thing that's the same, and that's that in both encounters, Paul has the same purpose. The same purpose. So just as he went straight to the scriptures, We see that his purpose was this in verses 2 and 3. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. There's three things that are apparent from this. First, he goes straight to the scripture to say, all of scripture is telling us about this Christ, about an anointed one, a Messiah, a Savior that will come and redeem his people. Now, when we think of Scripture, obviously we're thinking of, of the Old and New Testament, our entire Bible, but, but clearly Paul, at his, in his time, he's referring simply to the Old Testament. And sometimes it's hard even for us to see how the entire Old Testament is pointing us toward this Savior, toward this Messiah, but it's there. Now, we don't have exactly which passages he used uh, in this encounter to make this claim, but we do know from a, a previous encounter at Pisidian Antioch, he used, he used passages like Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm chapter 16, or Psalm 22, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 55, Habakkuk 1. He went all through Scripture and showed them that Scripture is pointing us to this Messiah. And I have to believe at some point he came around to to probably the greatest chapter in the Old Testament that tells us about the Messiah, and that comes in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, the fifth verse says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Just a few verses later, verse 12, the prophet says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You've probably heard before that the Jews had this great misconception of who the Messiah would be, what he would be like, what his purpose would be in coming. Most of them envisioned some sort of political leader, maybe a military leader that would come and shake off the oppression of Rome and restore Israel to its favored status as God's people. That's what they were looking for. That's what their eyes were were attuned to. But they were forgetting all these scriptures that told us that the Messiah would come to suffer. The Messiah would have to suffer so that he could reconcile sinners to a holy God. A sacrifice would be necessary. And as they missed these scriptures, they missed the whole point of the Messiah's coming. And that's what Paul was trying to communicate to them. Now, Paul didn't come up with this on his own. That's not something he figured out by searching the scriptures himself. Jesus himself in his earthly ministry shared this same truth. In an encounter with some Jewish leaders back in John chapter 5, he makes it very clear that the Old Testament speaks to him. Here's his words from John chapter 5, two verses, verse 39 and verse 46. He told them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Then verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus very likely could have been referring uh, to a, a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 18 in verse 15 where Moses wrote this. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So even in Jesus' earthly ministry before his crucifixion, he was making it clear to all who would listen that he was the one spoken of in the scriptures. The disciples missed this a lot of the time. They didn't have a full understanding of it. And certainly the religious leaders of the day couldn't see it. But after his resurrection, after his resurrection, it's interesting because Luke, the same writer of the book of Acts here, in his gospel, he records for us an encounter with Jesus and a couple of his followers on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. So they don't know it's Jesus, and they begin walking with him, and they're describing the events that have taken place in Jerusalem with this Jesus of Nazareth. And they're essentially despondent. They're showing this this level of despair because they say, you know, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the promised one, but but now everything's been shattered because he's been crucified. And so Jesus has this fantastic response to them in Luke chapter 24, in verse 25. Luke tells us, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then just a few verses later, he's back in Jerusalem and he makes an appearance to the 11 disciples and to some other followers that are gathered there with him. And he gives similar words, Luke tells us. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus obviously knew this was going to be an issue. He knew that, that his followers just couldn't wrap their minds around a Savior who would suffer. They couldn't wrap their minds around a Messiah who would sacrifice himself because they were looking for this other Messiah. So Luke tells us he does a couple things. One, he explains to them from the Scriptures 
And then in that second passage, a great phrase that Luke uses there, he opened their eyes to the scriptures. And that's what Paul is trying to do in his ministry. That's why when Paul goes to the city, he goes straight to the synagogue, he goes straight to the scriptures, and he tries to open their eyes to the scriptures and see this is what has been told all along, that there is a Messiah and that the Messiah must suffer and must die. Paul himself knew that this would be an obstacle for many people. We see that in his later writing when he writes to the, to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he writes this, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now, if Paul's message was similar in both of these cases, he's going to Thessalonica and to Berea preaching the same message. Why do we have such vastly different responses? Why was the response at Thessalonica violent opposition and the response at Berea so different? Well, let's take a look. The first reason is that the people had different character. Their character was fundamentally different. We see this clearly in verse 11 when Luke tells us, Now these Jews, the, the Jews of uh, Thessalonica, were, uh, the Jews of Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. In the NIV, he, he uses the word, were of more noble character. Now, the Greek word that, that was translated there, noble, this is the only place it occurs in the New Testament, but we know from other writings that its original literal meaning meant of noble birth. So it implied this nobility, but the, the normal usage of the word came to mean open-minded, a certain open-mindedness. You'll even see in some translations, they've opted for that and said that, that the Jews in Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and certainly we see that in the response that the Berean Jews have. What do they do? They go straight to the scripture to confirm the truth that's been proclaimed to them. Now, I think it's important to, to point out this open-mindedness isn't that they'll just listen to anything and follow anything that comes along. That's not, that's not nobility at all. That's, that's being gullible, and that wouldn't be something to be celebrated in the least. But the Berean Jews, their nobility came from the fact that their open-mindedness caused them to search the scriptures rather than simply seek to confirm their own bias that they have, either cultural or political or tradition-based. So they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. This different culture gave rise to a different concerns. They had different concerns. Here's how Luke describes the reaction of the Thessalonian Jews. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Jealous. He describes them as jealous. Now, we could almost excuse if, if they were worried about false teaching or worried about heresy and wanted to protect their flock from that false teaching. But that's not the issue at all. Luke makes it clear. They didn't have a doctrinal issue or some theological issue with the teaching of Paul. Their issue was self-centeredness. They were jealous. This is not a new reaction in the Scriptures. We see the same type of attitude that was taken by the religious leaders in Jesus' day. A certain jealousy overtook them as they saw Jesus start to build a following. We see the same thing just a couple chapters earlier. We already talked about Pisidian Antioch. And as Paul went and preached there, initially the Jews there started to listen to his teaching and accept it. But as the numbers started to grow, and it tells us almost the whole town showed up to hear Paul teach, that's when they started to become jealous. So why would, why would they be jealous? Well, I think if you put, your pla put yourself in the place of one of these first century Jews living in Macedonia, part of the synagogue that had been established probably not so easily, they're in the minority everywhere they are, 
They've worked hard to, to gain some converts. It says that there were, there were Greeks and prominent women part of the synagogue there. They'd worked hard to build the synagogue. They'd worked hard to get these converts. And now Paul and Silas and Timothy, they come along and start to take away these converts. These converts start to see the gospel for what it is, and they no longer revere the opinions of those in the synagogue. And as they lose the converts, they start to lose credibility in the community because if, if this goes to its logical end and the Greeks actually leave the synagogue and, and become part of this new uh, Christ-following church, then they're going to return to their state as just a minority Jewish population struggling to survive in a foreign land. Remember, they're not in Jerusalem. They don't enjoy the privilege of being in the ruling class. So this fear leads to a jealousy, and this jealousy utterly consumes them. We see their response is to form a mob to try to drive this teaching out of the city. And they're successful in doing that. Paul and Silas leave, and, and, and the, the mob prevails in that sense. But that even is not enough. When they find out that Paul's in Berea, teaching just 50 or 60 miles away, they say, we can't have that either. We're going to Berea. We're getting them out of there. Again, paralleling this, this uh, account from Pisidian Antioch, where the jealousy so consumed them that they followed them to Lystra to kick them out of there. But the Berean response is very different, right? Verse 11 tells us, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Luke contrasts this self-centered Thessalonian view with a truth-centered Berean view. Whereas the Jews in Thessalonica, consumed with self, leads to jealousy. The Jews in Berea were consumed with truth, and that led them to search the scriptures daily even to figure out if what Paul was saying was the truth, if that's the way that they needed to go. Given the way that Luke sets up this comparison and contrast, it's pretty stark. So are we to assume that Thessalonica is all bad and Berea is all good? Well, certainly not. Even though that his point is to draw this contrast, he leaves us clues all along the way that there would have to be an individual response. Individuals would have to accept or reject this gospel that was coming to them and that it wouldn't be based totally on, on a group. We see in the, the account at Thessalonica that, that a few Jews believed, that many Greeks and many women also believed. We have the testimony of Jason, who as a new believer is brought before the magistrates by the mob. He's able to stand firm in his faith. Contrast that with Berea, where, yes, many Jews believed, but it doesn't say all of them believed. It doesn't even say most of them believed. And this would just be the ones that were part of this synagogue, so it certainly wasn't a citywide transformation. There was an individual response to the gospel. Paul would later write two letters to the Thessalonians. In those letters, it's quite clear. He, he shows them what great love he has for them, treats them as children, commends them in several ways. When we look at the, the first letter in the first chapter, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, he writes this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Paul commends them, goes on to commend them for several things in that letter. He commends them for turning from the pagan idols that they had worshipped and turning to God. He commends them for their steadfast faith that was born in the midst of this, this affliction that he describes and how they remained faithful 
in a land that was hostile to their beliefs. He even commends them for their missionary efforts, how they'd been an example to all the area around them. So this Thessalonian description that we have isn't meant to say that the entire city was condemned. Individuals made a response to follow Christ and to give their all. So what do we do with this account? I talked earlier about Acts being, in some ways, this narrative, and you kind of get sucked into the story. You, you realize that, okay, there's some action going on, and you figure out what the resolution is. And sometimes we fail to see that there is a point to all this, that it's not enough that we just know what happened in the early church, that God has put this in here for us to learn something. So what's the point? In this case, I think we can, we can pull out three fundamental truths about the gospel that can inform our life and our witness. First truth is obvious, it's this, that the gospel is polarizing. There are extreme responses to the gospel. We see that in this account, and in fact, all the way through the book of Acts, Luke shares with us how there's the same message preached, and there are some that would oppose and some that would align their lives with it. There's some that would dismiss it as a human invention, and some would, that would make it the center of their very life. There's some that would violently oppose it, and then there's some that would lay down their life for it. There's always a reaction to the gospel, and it can be polarizing. We'd live in a dream world if we thought all we had to do was roll out a carpet and people would come to know Christ. Sure, some will, but we'll face op- opposition. The persecution will be inevitable. But that leads us to the next fundamental truth of the gospel, and that is that the gospel is persevering. It will endure. Not only does it endure, but even in the face of persecution, sometimes that's where it thrives. That's what we see here. When you read those letters to the Thessalonians and you see how wonderful their faith was, and you realize that it was born out of this intense affliction and persecution, we see that the gospel is persevering. It's important to note on this that the gospel survives these various attacks, not through the militant defeat of its enemies, but rather through the power of the gospel to transform lives. And that's how it will survive today. That's how it will continue to survive after we're gone. It's not that the enemies of the Lord will all be brought into submission. That will happen in the end. That will happen in the end. But the gospel survives despite the persecution because it's a gospel filled with power. And the power is the salvation of life. It's the placing of hope where there is no hope. That leads us to the final point, that the gospel is paramount. There's nothing greater. Paul recognized this. That's why he preached it. That's why he went immediately to the synagogue and immediately to the the scriptures that would point to the Messiah. Because he knew that, sure, there were some doctrinal issues that might become important. There were some issues of morality that he would have to address. We see that in a lot of the letters that he writes. But nothing was greater than the truth of the gospel that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He wouldn't let anything get in the way of that. It is through his death that we have life. And it's through the resurrection that we are able to share in his glory. This is the word of God. And all God's people said.